0: The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, uh, got to be in verses 31 and 32. I want to begin the message with a, a story. It's a story I'm going to use fictional names for, but it's a story that I could insert A multitude of names, unfortunately. It's a story that in some shape or form uh, I have come to know time and time again. We'll call them Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill met in college and they fell in love. Uh, Jack and Jill bought into the mentality that they were soulmates. It was a hallmark movie unfolding before their eyes, fell madly in love, made it through college, both graduate, they get married, Jack and Jill start their careers, they get good jobs and all is well, they buy a house together, Jill buys a new car, Jack buys a new boat, and things seem great. But then, baby John happens. Baby John comes, and all of a sudden, Jill gets a little moody, Jack gets a little too busy, and baby John gets a little expensive. And all of a sudden, between the house payment and the boat payment and the car payment, money gets tight. And before they realize it, happily ever after turns into misery never-ending. And lo and behold, Jack is at work, and Jack gets a new co-worker. And she is single, and she is carefree, and she is a bit flirtatious and shows a little bit of interest in Jack. And Jack begins to think, doesn't God want me to be happy? Haven't I deserved happiness. You know, I think I I heard about in the Old Testament that it was permitted to divorce. You know, Solomon, I heard he had like a bunch of wives. What does Jesus have to say? Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Furthermore it has been said Whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for any or if for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. This morning's message is on the subject Jesus puts before us of marriage and divorce, and then even the subject of remarriage. It is a hard subject, undoubtedly, to cover. Um, it is a hard subject due to the sensitivity of the the subject itself. Even in in regards to many in this room have walked through one of those aspects of. Most in here are married, some are divorced and remarried, some are um, divorced and single. And and, and the whole difficulty of dealing with something that is so real to so many of us poses challenges in and of itself. Uh, There's a difficulty in this passage due to the diversity of interpretation and application of what is written, especially in regards to the subject of remarriage, which we'll dive into in, in conclusion this morning. There's a difficulty, even in the brevity of time that we have together, to dive into such a, a sensitive subject and only have thirty-five minutes-ish, not even this morning, to unfold it before us, poses in and of itself a great challenge. To in sometimes in brevity not be thorough and leave things open to misunderstanding as you hear what I'm saying, and so I I do call for your grace this morning. I do call even for your attention that that you listen attentively, as we will be moving a bit quickly to work through some of these scriptures that we're going to look to, and also that in in grace, you you if you have any questions at the end of what we work through, please come talk to me, come see me, and let's work through what the misunderstanding may have been, or or just. Uh, a disagreement with what we are looking at here in the Word of God this morning. I want to give more of a teaching outline this morning rather than a preaching outline, uh, just describing knowledge that God is giving to us rather than exhorting you to follow or do or obey something. A teaching outline with three headings, the sanctity of marriage, the devastation of divorce, and the difficulty of remarriage. Uh, we will walk through each of those three in that order. First this morning, let's consider together the sanctity of marriage, the the sacredness of it, the the holiness of it in the eyes of God. Jesus is speaking here on the subject of divorce and he's implying that there is an understanding of what marriage is. Before we speak of divorce, we must look to the Bible and ask, what does the Bible teach us about marriage? What is it? to be married. We need to understand that before we can ever understand the, the devastation of divorce. So what is marriage? I'll give you a simple biblical definition. Marriage is a lifelong covenant, union between one man and one woman. It's a lifelong covenant. It's, it's meant to be until death do you part. It's a, a covenant. It's more than a contract. It's more than a legal obligation. When the Bible speaks of covenant, it's speaking of a change of relationship. That when a man and a woman enter into this covenant, they develop a unique relationship with one another that is unlike a relationship with anybody else in life. And so that man is set apart to that woman to be her man, her husband, different and set apart, sanctified from all other men on planet Earth. And vice versa, that, that woman is set apart under that man to be his wife. It's his woman, apart from all other women on planet earth. There's a there's a covenant that is established in marriage, a, a change of relationship. And it's a union, it's a covenant union. The, the two that are separate. The two that are individuals in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man and even in the eyes of government that recognizes marriage, the two become one flesh. There is a union. And it is between one man and between one woman. Between one man and between one woman. The Bible makes this clear, even as it's established in Genesis Romans chapter 1, even dealing with the anatomy of a man and a woman, that, that God has designed it so that this relationship is for the intimacy even of, of a man and a woman. Go to a, a plumber and ask him about plumbing fittings. If you have any question or confusion about the Bible's view on that, by God's good design, one man and one woman, in this relationship of marriage, it's given in order to rear children, for children to be produced offspring of of procreation, but it's also given to create that environment whereby children are best reared and best raised in that that family unit of a mother and of a father and the uniqueness of the giftings of God's design and what it is to be a mother and what it is to be a father in the admonishing and rearing up of children. It is an exclusive relationship. It's not meant to be A man and multiple women. A man and multiple wives. Not by God's good design. It's not meant to be a woman and multiple men. And you say, well, what about polygamy in the Bible? I know that in the Old Testament, like Solomon and others, there were some who had many wives. Yes, you're right that the Bible mentions there were some who took multiple wives. However, if you would read your scripture with any intelligence at all, What you will find as you read through the storyline of Scripture, when that is mentioned, it is never commended by God as a good thing. Just the opposite, it's actually the Scripture showing us the moral depravity of an individual's life or of a culture that's falling away further and further from God. It's actually given and described, even in the life of David, or in the life of Solomon, or early on even in the book of Genesis when it occurs, it's given as an evidence that that, that the people were moving further and further away from what God had originally created and designed in the Garden of Eden. Marriage from the beginning and reestablished, as we're going to see in the words of Christ, is an exclusive relationship between one man and between one woman. I want you to notice that it is a God-ordained union. God is the one who created this thing called marriage. Genesis 1 and verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now Jesus adds to this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 9, and in Matthew 19 and verse 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That marriage is instituted by God. It wasn't created by human beings. It wasn't created by Human government. Marriage is an institution designed by God, even in the very beginning, for those reasons we've already listed, and God is involved in this covenant of marriage. What God joins together, they become one, let not man separate. It is a socially recognized union. That meaning it's not just a matter of private agreement or of a private decision. It is to be recognized by the people that are around you. And go to Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. And Genesis chapter 20 also includes the story of Abraham and his stubbornness going into Egypt and lying about his relationship with Sarah, his wife, and leaving that detail out. His view was he was scared that the Egyptians would kill him to take his wife because of her good looks, but he lied about it. And it's acknowledged in that that marriage was to be a a social construct, a a social recognized institution that people around realize and know that man is devoted to that woman exclusively in a lifelong relationship. And that woman is devoted to that man exclusively in a lifelong relationship. Marriage is not meant to be merely a private ordeal. It is meant to be publicly acknowledged and recognized. So I had a couple come to me a, a long while back that was wanting to get married but wisely wasn't wanting to spend a lot of money on a wedding ceremony and really didn't care if family or friends or anybody was present. They just wanted to be married even just here at the church by themselves or even just in my office. And I told them, no, marriage is more than just a private acknowledgement between you two. Even the marriage license itself requires a witness as you enter into this covenant. And it is to be known and witnessed and celebrated by many, acknowledged that these two are coming into this covenant of exclusivity with one another, becoming one in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man, in the eyes of the the, the culture, the people who surround us. Thirdly, also, in our context, it is a legally sanctioned union. Marriage is a legally sanctioned union. We live under a government that rightly acknowledges the institution of marriage and recognizes and sanctions that union. Now, there are some countries that do not do that, and so this wouldn't apply to them as it does to us. And you say, why does it apply to us? Because Romans 13, 1 through 3 is in your Bible, where God commands of us, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. God commands us to live under the laws of the government that he has placed over us. When those laws do not contradict his law. There's the exception. When those laws do not contradict His law, we are to abide by it. If ever it were a law established that forbade us to get married, it was a law that was established that says no one shall get married, I would say no, we must get married. It's what God has designed and what God has intended, and we will have a Christian marriage that the government will not sanction or recognize, and we will go against that law or that command because we are to obey God rather than man. Now, the government, thankfully, even though they are moving to to recognize perversions of what Christian biblical marriage would be, the government has not yet reached a point where they are not acknowledging and recognizing Christian marriage. They are. It is sanctioned by the government. I am officially recognized by the governing state of Florida As an ordained minister, I have the authority to marry a person who has filed for a marriage license with the state. When I close out a wedding ceremony, you've heard it said before, as an ordained minister, by the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel and by the laws of the state, I joyfully pronounce you husband and wife. You realize that in order to get married in this country... You must file for a marriage license. I, as one who is authorized to perform those ceremonies, it's actually, you can be charged with a misdemeanor if you perform a marriage ceremony without. That marriage license, it is a state law, it is a a state authority, a governing authority that is in rightly uh, aligned, right, agreement with the Word of God. And so I would say as believers living in this country that rightly acknowledges marriage as a one oneness union and even legally joins you together financially and IRS tax purposes and, and just in life as a whole, husband and wife, they acknowledge the biblical oneness of what marriage is that it is right and necessary for you to be married in the eyes of God in the context of our living today, that the government also must have uh, uh, approval, authorization of that marriage. It must be recognized by the government. I had a couple that years ago had a wedding ceremony and they exchanged vows and rings, but they never filed legally for a marriage license. They legally were never married, and the motivation was financial benefit because of financial benefits that would change. And I had to counsel that couple and say... I don't believe in the eyes of God you're married. He's placed you under this government that He calls you to submit to the authority He's placed over you. And marriage is more than just a a church institution. It's a secular institution that God has given to all humanity. And we are blessed to serve under a government that still recognizes that. If you're here and you're not legally married, I would argue, as I counsel that couple, you need to get legally married to be right in that marriage. Moving back to the original thought, the sanctity of marriage. Just two scriptures I want to give to you. Proverbs 18 and 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is a good thing in the eyes of God. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and has obtained favor from the Lord. That when a marriage is working as God has called it to work and designed it to work, it is a beautiful, God-glorifying, honorable thing in the eyes of God. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But even in the enjoyment of of intimacy, God has designed that for this marriage covenant. And it is honorable and it is good in the eyes of God. There is a sanctity to marriage. Notice, secondly, therefore, the devastation of divorce. That when that good thing that God has designed, and in the goodness of bringing two together as one, even physically, and in the eyes of man, and in the eyes of God, and legally even in the eyes of the, the government, when that union that God has created is severed, it's as bad as cutting something a person even in half. Divorce, the word itself, in the root meaning of the word, it means a hewing off or a cutting apart. It's really picturing an amputation of the flesh. That the divorce is never a good thing, even in some difficult situations where it may be necessary. Divorce is never a good thing. It's never a thing that is to be celebrated. It's always a, a hewing off, a cutting apart, a, a severing. Under the law of Moses... Rules were given to regulate divorce. Jesus says in verse 31, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, under the law of Moses, divorce was never commended. It was never exalted as anything honorable in the eyes of God, but divorce was regulated. There were rules that were given to limit the abuse of divorce that was transpiring in that day of age. There are some, including the Pharisees, who take that those rules that are established for divorce and turn divorce into something that was just inconsequential in the eyes of God. They were trying to view divorce as something that would be even acceptable and permissible in the eyes of God, and little did they recall the words of, of God given in Malachi chapter two and verse 16. In okay, Malachi two and verse 16, it's written, "For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. though God permitted it, and though God gave rules to regulate great abuses of it, God all the while is proclaiming forth through Malachi even that God hates divorce, that divorce is never a good thing to be celebrated. It's never the best option to proceed forward, even when it is unfortunately necessary. Jesus made clear that divorce was not a good option in the eyes of God. You can flip over to Mark chapter 10 and look at verses 5 through 9. Jesus is answering the Pharisees who came and asked Him, Hey, under the law of Moses, it says we can give a certificate of divorce. What do you say about it? And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, in Jesus's day and age, there were two main schools of thought within the Pharisees. And there was one that was more liberal leaning. And they had gotten to the point in their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 that gave the rules regulating divorce, that that you could basically divorce your wife over almost anything. In what some of the writings, it's it's described as issuing a certificate of divorce because she oversalted a meal. <laughs> Sorry, hon, you're done. <laughs> oversalted my green beans, and they could issue a divorce over it. Another example would be, they found their wife argumentative, or even for some certificates of divorce were issued because they found her unpleasant to their eyes because they found another woman who was more pleasant to look at. They had turned that into a means of what Jesus says is basically just committing adultery. To divorce and to remarry. And to divorce and to remarry. And in that context, Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery also. Realize something I can say this morning with a surety and with a biblical authority and confidence. If you divorce with the intent of marrying someone else, you are committing adultery. And if you, you divorce your spouse with the intent of, of marrying somebody else. It is never acceptable in the eyes of God. It is never a good thing. It is adultery, Jesus says, when you divorce and you remarry. God sees the heart. And to realize divorce, no matter what the situation, is always something to be grieved over. It's never the best option. Even where one, 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 one part of the, the marriage is, is sinning gravely, let say adultery has been committed. Okay, what's the best case scenario in that marriage? Is it divorce? No, the best case is an acknowledgement and confession of sin, repentance, and even restoration in a God way, a God-graced way of restoration that only comes from the forgiveness we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the best, the best pathway forward, no matter what the situation is regarding how great one spouse's sin may be, and how little the other spouse's sin may be. It is never best for divorce to occur. Now sometimes, because of the hardness of the, the one who is in great sin, their heart, divorce occurs. It happens. But that is something we grieve over. That is something that is not God's best. That is something that God does not desire. Divorce is never the best option. It is always something that is to be grieved. It will always carry with it unwanted consequences. Realize that because it's not God's good design. It is dishonoring ultimately to God, and it will have consequences. It is, there is a devastating aspect to it, no matter how we play the conditions out on each side. Notice thirdly and lastly, the difficulty of remarriage. The difficulty of remarriage. I want to just read to you some scripture to begin with on this subject. This isn't all the scripture that deals with this subject, but it is a, a good representation of the scripture that deals with this subject. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 through 3. If you're, if you're tuned in and interested in this subject on what the Bible has to say, I encourage you to write these verses down and study them in their context later. And if you need more verses, I have more verses to give to you also. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law uh, of her husband. so then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians seven, ten and 11. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39, later in that same chapter, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Luke chapter 16 and verse 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery and we turn to Matthew and we find Matthew in verse 19 or chapter 19 rather and also in chapter 5 verse 32 gives an exception and Matthew's the only one Mark and Luke do not give this exception but Matthew gives an exception here where he says I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery And so Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who gives this exception. And there's a lot of debate over what this exception really is. And I don't want to dive into it deeply, but I do want to just give a surface level overview of it. There are some who hold that Matthew is not referring here to adultery, but Matthew is actually referring to fornication during the betrothal period. During the period of, of commitment that is recognized in the Jewish culture as marriage, but the marriage has not yet been consummated yet. You say, what leads some to hold that view? There are two words in the Greek for, that are used in the Gospel of Matthew in regards to sexual sin. Okay, one is the word here, which is porneia. And porneia is not the word that would be commonly understood as adultery. There's another Greek word for that. That word is mo- moikeia. Moikeia, everybody would know, just as we would use the word adultery, refers to adultery. Porneia was a more generalized term. It really dealt with all sexual immorality, which could include adultery, but the most common understanding of that word is fornication. And you go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, let me get you the verse. Matthew 15 and verse 19, Matthew actually uses both of those words side by side. And one is translated fornication and the other is translated adultery. The word that Matthew uses in chapter 5 and in chapter 19, with this exception, it's not the word moito. Moichea, which is the word for adultery, it's actually the word pornea, which is the word for fornication, general sexual immorality. Again, Matthew's the only one who includes this exception. Mark, in the parallel passages, does not, neither does Luke in the parallel passage. This has led many to believe that Matthew is including that exception here, referring to the betrothal period, really because of Matthew chapter 1, the story of Mary and Joseph. He just wrote in chapter 1 that uh, Joseph was a just man and Mary ends up getting pregnant in this betrothal period before they consummated the marriage. And so Joseph knew, that is not my child in Mary's womb. And in Joseph, uh, it's written of Joseph being a just man. He sought to put her away privately. The divorce was permittable in the righteousness even of God in that betrothal period. And so they would apply this exception as an explanation of Matthew's desire for divorce in chapter 1, and an explanation applying only to before marriage. In the uh, uh, in the engagement time frame is what it would be for us. That when fornication is committed, the, the marriage is not to be consummated. It's, it's permissible for separation to occur. There are others who interpret this word to mean adultery, and who would say, no, this is an exception that adultery is a biblical grounds for divorce, as is abandonment. When you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for sake of time, we won't look at it, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, if an unbelieving spouse departs, uh, Paul says it's okay to divorce, it's okay to separate. But then the argument still is there that's, that's of debate, is that person free to remarry or not? And that is of debate. At the end of the day, those are the two conservative predominant views that are out there within conservative Bible scholarship. One is remarriage is never permissible according to the Bible after divorce. The other is remarriage is permissible only when the divorce occurs based upon the biblical grounds of adultery and of abandonment. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, my goodness, this is an extreme teaching from God's Word... You're in good company because the disciples, in Matthew chapter 19, after Jesus talked about if you divorce, it's the same as adultery. The disciples' response in Matthew 19 and verse 10, his disciples said to them, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) The disciples recognized Jesus is bringing a pretty severe teaching here. It's better not to marry than to not ever have the option of divorce, and there is some wisdom in that. This is a hard teaching. And it's a teaching that's difficult to apply in our day and age even. I have been faced with situations of couples wanting to get married, and and it's hard to take this teaching and try to apply it in every particular situation. Is this teaching that a a young man or a young lady who's divorced as a 20-something year old can never remarry ever again in their life. But if ten years down the road they, they find a godly spouse or a godly person, the godly you know, man finds a godly woman and, and one of them has been divorced, are they never able to remarry? Is it sin for them to marry? What about a young man whose wife left him for another man and he meets this godly woman? They desire to marry and follow God in their lives. Do they sin by marrying? What about this situation? A man who was divorced thirty-something years ago before he was even saved and he gets saved and he gets into church and he's a godly man following the Lord and he meets a godly widow and, and they, 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 they're attracted to one another and they come to a place of desiring and believing God's calling them together and, and come to me as pastor seeking to be married. Is it a sin for them to be married? What is my answer? What is my view even this morning as I'm preaching this passage? If I'm just being honest, which I want to be, I'm conflicted. I am conflicted. My heart says that by God's grace, remarriage is permissible once true repentance has been found. And so once true repentance has occurred over whatever past failure there is a fresh slave and a newness in the grace of God. My heart wants to believe that. My eyes say remarriage is permissible due to the fact that I've, I've seen the blessings and the goodness of second marriages, even within the context of this church right now. And so my eyes see that and, and want to believe remarriage is a good thing in the eyes of God. And yet my mind still studies the Word of God and I come to the conclusion that God's Word teaches that marriage is not best. That remarriage rather is not best. That there are so many passages that speak to the gifting of singleness and devotion to the Lord and, and the severing of that first relationship. And so... I know my heart and eyes can easily be deceived, and I know God's Word is never wrong, but I also acknowledge and recognize my interpretation of God's Word can be wrong. Believe it or not, I'm not a fallible source. I may have a wrong interpretation, but I struggle because I even this week have gone through it all afresh and anew with a heart wanting to believe and with eyes that have seen the, the goodness of the fruit of a second marriage, even in third marriage, even in some situations, once true repentance has be fa- been found in, in living in the grace of God in that new relationship. And yet, as I study the Scripture itself, I haven't yet come to a place where I can see that interpretation in God's Word as remarriage being permissible. So what am I saying to you this morning? If you are here and you are divorced and you're seeking to remarry, I would say God has given you His Word and God has given you His Spirit and you must personally seek Him through it. You need to study God's Word out yourself. You need to pray and earnestly seek God. You need to seek godly counsel and let godly wisdom speak into your situation. And then you need to follow the Lord and and your conscience and what God leads you in that situation to do. I am not confident enough in my interpretation to boldly proclaim with an authority from God that you should never remarry, and if you do, it is sin. But I am also not confident in my commission of God to present forth what He has said, and not what I want Him to say. To say, I struggle with the issue. And I do see His Word teaching us uh, a call to singleness once divorce has, recur- has occurred. I know looking out at this room, there are a number of people who are on a second or a third or even maybe a fourth or a fifth marriage. And some of you can look back and say, I've had biblical grounds for that divorce. My spouse cheated on me. They were unfaithful. They committed adultery and they did not want to reconcile Some of you may say my spouse abandoned me and they're the ones that sought divorce. Some of you can look back and and you would have to confess, no, I was the one in sin and deep, deep sin. I was the one committing adultery. I was the one not reconciling and seeking divorce. It's fitting for us to close out this morning with the words of Jesus to a woman who was caught in the act of adultery itself. John chapter 8. A woman that the Pharisees took and drugged to, to Christ and threw down at his steed and and asked Jesus, according to the law, this woman has been caught in adultery, she is to be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? I don't know what, we're not told what Jesus was writing in the sand, but he was writing something in the sand. And whatever he did, it led all of those Pharisees who had drugged this woman from her act of immorality there to the foot of Jesus to be judged and condemned. Whatever it was that Jesus did brought to light their own personal sins. So much so that these men fell under the conviction of their own sin, and they each one turned, and they went back to their house, leaving that woman there alone, there before the feet of Jesus. What is it that Jesus says to her? He looked to her and and said, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She looked up to Christ and said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. The the incarnate Son of God, who was the author of the law of Moses, who was the incarnate law given even to man, the Word made flesh, looks to this woman caught in the act of adultery. And He says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If you're struggling with things in your past that are wrong and sinful, if you've got divorce in your past and even through this message you're unsure if that was wrong in the eyes of God and now you're remarried and you don't know if you should have gotten remarried or is that adultery that I got remarried and you're struggling as you rightly ought to be struggling with the Word of God and what it teaches, hear me and understand this last concluding point. The heart of God is not to condemn you for your past failures, but to restore and redeem you by His gracious love and lead you afresh and anew in His righteous ways." If we could just grasp this, not only dealing with divorce and remarriage, but dealing with all sins that we are all caught in at all times, it would guard our hearts from legalism and from hateful condemnation that has taken root in so many Christians' lives and so many churches even, that that are conservative especially, to understand this point, that the heart of God is not to condemn you for your past failures. God doesn't delight in the destruction of sinners. He delights when the sinner repents and finds forgiveness and finds life and finds restoration and renewal in Him. He doesn't look to the woman and say, your sins are forgiven. Go and continue in your sins. Well, He looks to the woman and He says, neither do I condemn you. There's forgiveness in the Lord. And then He says, go and sin no more. Go and do rightly. Whatever it is that you find yourself in in this moment, Are you married on a second or third or a fourth marriage? Do it rightly before the Lord. Honor God. Learn from past failures and past mistakes. It's not right to sever that new union, to break up a new family that's been established. That's foolishness. Honor God. Find repentance and the grace of God to forgive and, and move forward. Uh, if you're here and you're living together and you're not yet married and, and you've been divorced and you're wondering, what should I do? You've, you've come together physically as one in the eyes of God. Get married and do it right before the Lord. Establish that covenant of marriage that ought to unify you in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man and in the eyes of the government. Find the grace of God that forgives past failures, but, but, but go and sin no more pursue the righteousness of God that He calls you to, in whatever state it is that you find yourself this morning. The heart of God is not to condemn you for your past failures, but to restore and redeem you by His gracious love and lead you afresh in His righteous ways. Heavenly Father, I come to You and I pray You would take the truth of Your Word and Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe and understand. A hard truth in a way from your word, but a needed truth that marriage is holy and sanctified in your eyes. There's a a oneness in it you, what you joined together should never be severed, never be separated. Lord, in a broken, fallen world, because of the sins of our hearts and the sins even that others commit, sometimes divorces happen. Lord, it is broken. It is not what ought to be. It is devastating. But Lord, in You there's forgiveness. In You there's grace. In You there's redemption. In You there is renewal even. So Lord, I pray for all in this room that we would find of Your grace and mercy the ability to move forward, to press on, to seek You and to pursue Your righteousness. Lord, work. I pray, strengthen every marriage. May divorce never be an option in our minds. Lord, if there be anyone here who doesn't know you, may they come to know you even now, turn to you and find salvation in this invitation, we ask in Jesus' precious name.